Hello, my name is Dr. Deanne Ross. I'm the love theorist. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. This chapter called Love is chapter number five in my new book called Brokenheartedness Towards Love in Professional Practice. I'm going to read this chapter to you, hopefully without too many hiccups along the way. And um, if you've just come to this podcast and haven't come to the other offerings of the preceding chapters, uh, I think it should still work just listening to this chapter first up uh, and you might then want to backtrack to the other chapters. But just to give you a bit of a feel for where this chapter sits in the whole book situation, what I've done so far in the book, in the preceding chapters, is talk about what I think are the big issues of our time in a way that is underneath the surface of the particularity of issues. Uh, so, for example, I don't talk, well, I do talk about domestic violence in Chapter 1 um, as one example of, obviously, violence. Um, and in that chapter, I use it as a way of showing how that complexity of experiences um, are caused by lovelessness. Because if you love people, you don't treat them that way. You don't treat them with violence. So the first chapter is called Lovelessness. And this chapter and all the subsequent ones that outline what I think are the issues of our time thread my personal story and my professional story along and within a socio-political commentary um, as I have experienced significant issues of our time, not trying to speak to everything in every way. So the first chapter is lovelessness. I think it underpins all harm done in the world um, toward all beings. The next chapter is violence, which gives some specific examples in my professional practice in particular of violence, especially organisational violence. <clears throat> some of this work is based on research as well as direct practice experience. Then, and the chapters are interlinked, yeah. Um, where there is lovelessness, there will be some type of violence occurring. The, the next chapter, which is quite a big chapter, and you'll find several podcasts needed to, of about a half an hour or more, needed to get through that big chapter on eco-injustice, which is about three types of injustice. Injustice against people, social injustice, injustice against some animals, species injustice, and injustice against Mother Nature, environmental injustice. Then after mapping my experiences and understandings of those issues, uh, which help us unpack some of the, really the ethical and moral dilemmas of our time, I have a chapter on brokenheartedness, which is a way of trying to describe what I think are the impacts of those kind of harms to people, animals and nature herself. So brokenheartedness, of course, is a big theme of the book and where there is brokenheartedness is where we need to be loving, kind and try to address the injustices underpinning the brokenheartedness. So, you know, you're probably getting a sense in all of that that the way I think about love, the way I think about even brokenheartedness is very, very particular. 
Um, it's not mainstream thinking of, for example, loss of a, an intimate partner, but it absolutely can encompass that. Anyway, <laughs> brings us to the, really the beginning of the second part of the book where I more directly speak to the concepts and practices that can challenge lovelessness, violence and eco-injustice in all its forms. And the first concept, of course, is love. It was kind of interesting when I was getting ready to share this with you. Um, it's probably one of the shortest chapters in the book, even though it's really a very big concept. Um, and I, I think this is because the following chapters on non-violence and eco-justice are intricately entwined with the love ethic and so it's really hard to say too much about love without moving on to those chapters. Anyway, perhaps I should get on with reading the chapter <laughs> and um, yeah, here we go. It starts on page 134 and it's just entitled Love. At this time in my life, I'm holding on to one idea above all others. It is an idea that has become a belief that is unshakable, despite being put to the test on many occasions. I have an unshakable belief in love. Love is at the heart of what I think is needed to address harm and loss of all kinds for all kinds. Typically, love is understood as a feeling and often as a romantic connection in private between people. This matters, but for our purposes, love is more of an action, often many actions, to make a difference for the better in our lives and the world. Love is as love does. If it does not look and feel loving for the most vulnerable and most oppressed, it is not love. To be able to believe in love, in the absence of love, is one of the hardest things in the world to do. To be nursing a broken heart from what I witnessed as a child, in my family and later in other families, and try to be loving in the world is also one of the hardest things to do. Given this, I do not say the next point lightly. I think the love revolution on many occasions is happening with broken-hearted people who are expressing love out into the world. In so doing, they are transforming their broken-heartedness into love energy instead of hate energy. This is one of the secrets of a broken heart. We can be experts in the importance of being loving. A gem of hope is that love that comes from broken-heartedness can be a gentle way to self-heal. And this love is a potentially revolutionary force outwards into the world. In the deepest, most hurt parts of ourselves, when love has been lost or is not known, the smallest act of kindness to ourselves is extraordinary. This is the pivot point of hope in the world. Before writing this book, I had come to a crossroad in my thinking about love. I felt that I needed to research more deeply what I meant by this cherished belief. This is because it was not self-evident what love might involve in many complex, conflictual and violent situations. Nor is it self-evident how love can influence the powerful elites of society to take their proper responsibilities for harms and injustices done. 
I remember Hooke's writing that she came to theory as a young person to try to make find a way to make the pain of racism go away. She explains that for such a theory to have value, we would need to work on making it help us know how to address the issue. This is because it's one thing to have a set of ideas and quite another to put them into practice. I really understood her in a way that I didn't with a university textbook. At a rational level, I understand theories help us explain the world and guide us in knowing how to act. As a set of beliefs, assumptions, claims and strategies, theories hold promise for a better world. I've been almost totally relying on Hooks' ideas about love for my own practice, but this has become more and more inadequate for me as their ideas do not readily translate into my situation. Thus I've arrived at a point where I want to acknowledge and build upon Hooks' idea of the love ethic and develop a theory of love. Theory aims to make statements that can be considered by others for their verity and usefulness. Sociological theories are not trying to provide evidence or proof as such, but they do need to ring true as feasible, believable and worthy of our attention. This chapter and the ones that follow outline some of my thinking about love, which forms the basis of the theory of love. A different understanding of love is needed to guide concerned citizens in responding to the heartbreaking justice issues of our times. Thus I am looking for an expansive, multi-dimensional way of thinking about love to guide personal and planetary healing and justice work. I came to call this type of love, revolutionary love. I've got a subsection title here called The Four-Letter Word. It is perplexing that it took me a long time to come to have the courage to use the word love in my work. It was serendipitous moment when I found the key that helped me link the idea of love to my professional practice. I was teaching in social work when a student gave me one of Bell Hooks' books. It happened very early on in my academic career back in the 1990s. The book was called Teaching to Transgress, education as the practice of freedom. In it, Hooks writes that the classroom could be a revolutionary space where people could know democracy and know what it was like to be respected for their ideas. I found that truly radical because academia felt very controlled in what was expected of students, even though they were adult learners. This was my introduction to Bell Hooks. I have to thank that social work student from way back for passing me the book. It was one of those career-defining moments. The idea of love has intrigued me ever since. I went on to do my doctorate on trying to understand love in an academic setting, what that meant for my subsequent practice. Here we are, fast forward more than 20 years later, Perhaps most clearly in the last two years, I've become very focused on understanding everything that I do as being inspired by what Bell Hooks calls the love ethic. The love ethic or ethic of love is a bundle of values and capacities that inspires me in the darkest of times to pivot towards loving actions. 
Hooks was a black American woman who, during her lifetime, wrote more than 40 books. She was a professor of English and travelled all over the world giving speeches and presentations and talking with people about issues of racism and how it impacts black Americans. While Hooks was writing from her own lived experience and speaking predominantly to her own people, her ideas have value for everybody on the planet at this time. She was basically saying that love needs to be understood as more than our emotions and more than sexualized ideas or intimacy between people. Rather, love is action in the world to uphold justice and well-being. Hooks says that where there is love, there will be no violence, there will be no oppression. She particularly anchored her analysis of what is not okay around issues of white supremacy as the cause of racism, patriarchy as the cause of sexism, and capitalism as the cause of class discrimination. Hooks writes that there is a lack of love or a culture of lovelessness sometimes she calls it a culture of domination, that impacts minority status groups or undesirable groups of people. I found this idea of practising love as a conscious political action appealing. The implication is we need to think of oppressive situations as spaces and places where we can use love to work for justice. Her book, All About Love, is very inspirational. If you have not read it yet, I encourage you to get hold of it. Even though it's been around a long time, I think it is a seminal piece of writing. Hooks defines love as the combined forces of care, responsibility, knowledge, critical thinking and compassion. She says to make the difference, these ideas and abilities need to be actions in the world. I agree with Hooks that theory is meaningless unless we're going to make the commitment to use the ideas to take action. According to Hooks, love is the answer to all types of oppression. While I find that may be a simplistic statement, I also find it expands my way of thinking about love. It gives us a sense of what we can do that might make a difference for the better in any situation. No matter how constraining, no matter how violent, no matter how devastating the circumstance we find ourselves in, we can think, what can be a loving action in this situation? It is so courageous and potentially empowering to lead with love in such situations. The next, next section is called What Love Asks of Us. One of the implications of Hooke's idea of love is that there are a few layers to it. Firstly, we need to constantly practice self-love, but not in a narcissistic way. Rather, by genuinely understanding self-love as being about caring for ourselves and healing from trauma. Secondly, self-love is needed so we can contribute to the world without reacting out of our trauma or wounding. Thirdly, we need to foster a willingness to love others, including other animals and nature, as part of what love is about. What's been significant for me as a social worker is that love requires me to stand with minority status groups and places being exploited or abused. 
Fourthly, love requires us as well to be willing to stand up and challenge the powerful, privileged people, the organisations, managers, governments and big businesses. That is, to challenge the people who actually cause the inequalities in society that run along the fracture lines of oppression, such as racism, classism, sexism, disabilism and speciesism. The challenging of injustice needs to be undertaken with love. This involves peaceful, respectful dialogue and problem-solving with all parties, both those who are impacted by the injustice and those who are complicit. People need to be held accountable. When our actions cause harm, we need to make amends. We need to take responsibility. This emphasis on responsibility is part of Hooke's definition of love. I really like that. One of the questions to ask for love to be realised is, whose responsibility is it to do what is needed? Closely followed by this question, how do you get the powerful people who may not see they've caused harm to take responsibility? Freer says we need to bring people to the dialogue table. To bring substantive outcomes for the oppressed people, the task is to work through the justice issue by listening and negotiating. We can't shy away from seeking dialogue with powerful people and organisations, nor can we underestimate how hard it is to engage powerful people. Without them, we cannot get very far with the justice and love work that needs to happen. A commitment to self-development is another aspect of Hooks' definition of love, which she explains by drawing on Scott Peck's work, The Road Less Travelled. Hooks describes love as a willingness to extend ourselves, that is, to be willing to learn from our personal growth. Further, love involves our ability and willingness to support others, to extend themselves and learn for the good of others. I really like that definition. This idea of love derives originally from Eric Fromm's seminal book, The Art of Loving. Fromm explains that responsibility is a key aspect of love, but it could become a negative if responsibility is used to dominate others. Respect for others needs to be linked with responsibility because respect is about not exploiting and hurting others. This brings us to the heart of the matter. We cannot just stand in judgment about what is going on. We have to come into a situation, take an ethical position guided by love and justice and look to make a contribution where we are willing to learn as well. For example, love would make us concerned about issues of race, racial inequality, systemic racism, however you think about it. We need to be willing to look at our own internal attitudes and beliefs. As a white woman, I need to make sure that I'm not complicit with colonialism and white supremacy and what all of that means for minority social groups. I like Hooks' definition of love as a political concept, not to take away from personal meanings of love and how that feels, but adding to and extending the personal idea of love. Love is action in the world to make a difference around matters of oppression 
Freer notes that oppression is about overwhelming control and domesticating of people's thinking to uncritically accept unequal situations. He sees dialogue between equals as love in action and writes that without love for the world, dialogue cannot be achieved. In a similar vein to Hooks, Freire explains how love is about courage, not fear, and involves a dedication to join with others to struggle for their liberation. They both warn against seeing love as sentimental or being duped by love as a pretext for exploitation. Love needs to lead to more acts of love, otherwise it is something else courting the name of love. The next section is called Love Power as a Counter to Violence Power. A particular moral conundrum arising from Hooks's ideas is that love and violence are mutually exclusive. That is, where there is love, there can be no violence. Both love and violence involve the exercise of power. However, in both instances, the power looks and feels very different and has very different goals and ethics. If there is abuse, exploitation and violence of any sort happening in a relationship, then Hooks would say that it is not love. It may be the person being abusive says they love you, but the words and the actions do not align. I'm reluctant to say that maybe there are not many people who have relationships where there is no violence and no exploitation. I believe within every relationship it is possible to increase the amount of love and decrease and remove any violence and exploitation that is happening. So it would not be quite as strident as Hooks when she says where there is love there is no oppression. I think it can be much messier than that. People love each other in situations of violence. It does not make the violence morally okay. The two phenomena, love and violence, can coexist, even though love would be deeply imprinted by the violence, as my personal experience highlights. The places where love is most needed are places of violence. Belief in the power of love to overcome the power of violence is a very hard belief to hold on to. Certainly in my social work career, I've had to be willing many times to step into situations of extreme unsafety for myself and other people. These were situations of injustice and violence. One example occurred in the situation I've mentioned relating to the troubled relationship between Yarloop and Alcohol World Illumina at Wager Up in Western Australia. On this particular occasion, I had to respond to a community member's concern that one of their neighbours was going to blow up Alcoa's management offices. This was occurring in a very charged situation where the adverse effects on the community were intensifying in the early 2000s. The neighbour owned guns and was one of many residents who were distraught and outraged by what the mining company was doing to their town. Many also felt cheated with the payment for their property, which they felt forced to sell due to pollution concerns. I supported the concerned person to stop his angry neighbour from responding to the injustices with violence. It was a very 
unsafe situation for myself and others that risks becoming a criminal matter rather than a justice matter. History has given us some remarkable examples of people who respond with love power in life-threatening, violent situations. Love is needed to resist violence in the most oppressive situations where the culture of domination is reinforced with extreme control and dehumanisation. Behrouz Bouchani is a Kurdish journalist and writer who sought refuge as an asylum seeker in Australia. He was taken to an offshore detention centre on Manus Island where he spent six years. As part of his resistance to the violence he experienced and witnessed towards others, he wrote No Friends But the Mountain, writing from Manus Prison. He won several significant Australian Book Awards. The Guardian newspaper reported that his book was praised by ward judges as a significant example of the power of witness and of writing as resistance. He wrote the book in secret by sending small segments on WhatsApp to supporters in Australia. It remains a major indictment on the lovelessness and violence by the federal government. Buchani was not permitted to attend the Book Awards ceremony in person and was subsequently given safe haven in New Zealand. The federal government activated a previously unused part of the Migration Act 1958 to legitimate the offshore detention of people seeking asylum. The government acted in the name of protecting the national interests, presumably for the public good. Proponents of the harsh treatment of asylum seekers would consider their actions as morally right, even loving, in protecting Australians. The International Convention on the Right to Seek Asylum was transgressed and continues to be transgressed. The harm to asylum seekers is both unjust and morally unsound and highlights to me that what is done in the name of love of country is not necessarily an innocent idea or action. Next section is called A Focus on Power. Embedded in my arguments and reflections so far in this book, and often invisible as a direct phenomenon, is the idea of power. I'm interested in love as a revolutionary force for good, hence the idea of revolutionary love. Another way of saying this is I'm interested in love as a form of power. I believe love as power is able to resist challenge and change violence. So I'm bringing a focus on to power here as part of holding myself and others accountable. For now, I need to be accountable for how my theorising is not power neutral or without effects in the world. For some people, the implications of a theory of love are unwelcome and even threatening. Thus we come to the recognition that power is as complex to describe and understand as the idea of love. Stephen Lukes explains this is because power is always value dependent. This means how power is exercised is related to how power is understood and who is doing the acting. Power has been defined in a myriad of ways. Many definitions have in common the point that power involves some amount of influence. This influence can include force, used against other people and other beings. Max Weber identified three types of power, 
traditional, charismatic and rational legal. Traditional power is located in people on the basis of social conventions, such as the Prime Minister or the Pope. Charismatic power is located in an individual's personality and elicits followers such as social influences on digital media. Rational legal authority is not possessed by an individual per se, but is located in the role they occupy and often underpinned by legislation. For example, the Migration Act 1958 authorises the Australian Navy to intercept asylum seekers and take them to an offshore detention centre. Power can also be operating in a situation as an implicit or direct threat of harmful consequences if certain behaviours occur or do not occur. Power is always present in any interaction from the intimate personal realm to the public realm. All actions and non-actions are imbued with power. Discourses are the collectivity of ways that people communicate, interact and make meaning in specific historical and material circumstances. Discourse is usually mentioned in terms of dominant discourses which serve to normalise the ideas of the elites of society as the truth to be followed. This is how the power to influence, achieve goals and certain outcomes are closely tied to how knowledge is understood and used. C. Wright Mills claimed that most people adapt to modern life shaped by governments, corporations and the military. The elites have more resources to employ to promote knowledge and ideas that serve their purposes. Michel Foucault described these resources as mechanisms of control and surveillance in places such as prisons and mental hospitals. The aim is the use of power, what Foucault calls disciplinary power, to gain the compliance of undesirable social groups who are regarded as being of less value or who are threatening to the power elites. Foucault's treatise on power attempts to challenge the idea that power is a zero-sum phenomenon where someone or an entity has it and others do not have it. At the same time, this is not to deny that for someone who is experiencing domination and violence, it can feel like they have no power. This in itself is part of the dominant discourse. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) That can keep people feeling fatalistic and defeated, entrapped in what Foucault calls docile bodies. Foucault argues that power exists in the everyday interactions between people as well as in the social and other institutions of society. Smith refers to the indirect forms of power as extra-local relations of ruling. This explains how power is layered throughout society and is far from a benign force in unequal societies and relationships. Whenever power is considered, it also needs to be tied to the possibility of resistance to the exercise of power. Against terrible odds, Buchani resisted the surveillance and control of the elites in Canberra and the managers of the offshore detention centre. He resisted first of all by surviving and then by writing a protest book of historical significance. A theory of love has to be relevant to guide responses to experiences such as Buchani's imprisonment and all other situations of violence and oppression. 
If love is the answer, its form is far from clear. When its absence is related to violence and injustice, it is a very troubling moral challenge that needs to be addressed by a society. As Gandhi said, the moral fibre of a society is to be judged by the quality of life of its most vulnerable members. Issues of lovelessness, violence and injustice are issues related to how power is used or not used by powerful people and organisations. Power is the antithesis of love when it is used or withheld and the impact is harm, trauma, even death. When the federal government legislated the Border Force Act in 2015, it was attempting to silence concerned workers who were bearing witness to the human suffering on Manus Island and other offshore detention centres. The legal threat was that people speaking out would be breaking the law and dealt with under the provisions of the Act. Doctors for Refugees resisted this threat and spoke out against the Act, arguing for the right of detainees to receive medical care. The government did not invoke the Act against them and subsequently removed that stricture for many, but not all, professions. Social workers remained legally unable to speak out about what they might witness in offshore detention centres. Immoral legislation needs to be resisted, and doing so can be successful. Resistance against harmful use of power is a form of love as long as it's non-violent. The next small section is called My Unloving Use of Power. As a social worker, it took me too many years to understand that having goodwill towards people in client situations was not sufficient to ensure the best outcome possible for them. I saw myself as a good person, but failed to appreciate the authority I wielded in my professional role. I also did not give sufficient credence to how people seeking help would perceive my role, for example, in public mental health services. I was aware of the stigma of mental illness, thanks to Goffman's book, Stigma, Notes on the Management of Spoiled Identity and I held doggedly onto a fragment of an idea from Schatz's book that mental illness is a myth. But I did not take this further to place myself in the picture. I was part of the state apparatus of controlling certain groups of people. This control was often against their will, leaving many people worse off after state intervention. Only now, as I'm writing this book, did I go back to Schatz to find a quote that I needed to heed in my practice. He wrote that institutionalised forms of helping and diagnosing can become an enslavement of the patient. This enslavement can occur with little gain of knowledge or responsibility by the patient or the helper. I was naive about power, yet I used it in ways that were unloving toward others, with few negative repercussions for myself. The next section is called, it starts with love. Love is a form of power. This is an unusual way of thinking about power because power is usually thought of as a negative matter. Love as a form of power can help bring a focus to how power can be a positive force for good in the world. Love can be about self-love, love of other people, love of other animals, 
and love of nature. It needs to be cultivated and practiced in relationships of all kinds. Thich Nhat Hanh taught that according to the Buddhist tradition, true love involves the four aspects of loving, namely kindness, compassion, joy and freedom. These capacities are to be practiced in our relationships with people in our daily lives, but require the practice of love of self at the same time. Han gives guidance on how to restore peace within ourselves when troubled or hurt by another person, how to overcome pride that can be a barrier to loving communication, and what is needed to care for, that is, heal our pain. The message is clear. We cannot love others if we are overloaded with pain, hurt and resentments to the point of being hopeless, helpless and feeling unloved. Han says this is because true love is being there for another, which requires knowing how to be there for ourselves as well. He believes that giving our presence to others is the most precious gift of all. I feel the need to respectfully place a qualifying statement alongside Han's ideas. Love love as a type of power is enacted in a social context. Where there is violence and inequality, love can be a dangerous experience for many people. To be present with an abusive person is not something that would be safe or even warranted as a first action. Inequality and the resultant violence needs to be held central in any theorising about love. Hooks writes extensively to black Americans about the issue of self-hate, which she links directly to internalised oppression due to racism and white supremacy. She regards loving blackness in a racist world as an act of resistance. She calls on black people to love themselves rightly, aware that racism is a form of assault that leaves deep emotional wounds. Additionally, there are different orders or levels of who is responsible to act and address harm. Hooks would argue that powerful white supremacists had the highest order of responsibility to address racism. The level of responsibility for the disadvantaged or harmed parties is to keep acting to overcome harm from violence and injustice through self-love. This needs to include avoiding being dehumanised by developing a critical understanding of the situation. The next section is called Love is Self-Care and Care of Others. I'm interested in self-love in terms of caring for ourselves, being kind and gentle with ourselves and doing the healing work related to our own wounds and trauma. This can be understood as self-empowerment or power being exercised at the personal level. At the same time, it needs to be recognised that in an unequal world, members of disadvantaged and stigmatised social groups carry an unfair burden in the caring and healing work. This caring work can go unrecognised and is not counted as part of the economic worth of a society. It is a dimension of sexism against women that they tend to provide most of the informal caring in families and communities. In professional situations, self-love is not the language used. Rather, it's talked about as self-care, which is needed to enable practitioners 
to have the capacity to build rapport and have empathy for the people they engage with. It is well recognised that experiences such as vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue can occur from witnessing other people's distress. In terms of health and safety legislation, it is the responsibility of the practitioner as well as their workplace to ensure worker wellbeing so they are fit for work. Thompson notes, however, that there can be a failure of legal duty of care responsibilities by management for practitioners who are experiencing what he calls occupational stress. The individual practitioner can be blamed for the stress issue and the broader workplace culture and resource factors are not considered. Individual attempts at self-care are diluted by toxic workplaces or what Bloom refers to as trauma-organising workplaces. This might make the idea of self-care complicated and may take it beyond the realms of the self in self-care. It is important to view personal behaviours in their socio-cultural context. Among other things, this can help us recognise why it might be so hard to maintain personal health, safety and well-being in some situations. It matters how we act in private places. It matters how we act in public places. We need to be congruent at home and at work. Violence can hide in the incongruence between our values and our actions. We are starved for good examples of people in public places standing up and being accountable for their actions when harm is done. This contrasts with people without public profiles often stepping up to be counted and try to make the public accountable, which can come at high cost to themselves. We need to start with ourselves, to go gentle on ourselves. Then we can have the resilience and sustain ourselves for challenging the powerful. Again, this challenging needs to be done with love. I think that part of what both Thich Hahn's legacy and Bell Hooks's legacy was that they were striving to live these ideas about love that they were writing about. They wanted to make a loving contribution in the world by starting with themselves and moving outwards to the people with whom they had contact or influence. Thich Han travelled to Western countries and lobbied prime ministers and presidents to stop their involvement in the war in his home country of Vietnam. He did this with love, despite the pain of witnessing the suffering of his people. The idea of eco-anxiety highlights for many of us, possibly most of us, that we are ongoingly witnessing injustices and harm. This concern for what is happening on the planet on so many levels is heartbreaking and can cause trauma. It can cause paralysis and can result in us losing hope of a better world. It can also have the effect of us not being so gentle, loving and kind to ourselves. Deep ecologist Joanna Macy says we need to do our own despair work by befriending our grief. This may help us avoid seeing our despair as a pathology and with this befriending of grief, be better able to contribute to the planetary healing work. Self-care and self-love can be regarded as parallel dimensions necessary for our commitment to being a love revolutionary. We need to care for and heal ourselves to love ourselves in the darkest of times. 
Otherwise, our ability to stand beside and be with others of all species, of all kinds, all our kin, will be limited and unsustainable in the long run. Next section is called Lovers Justice Work. <coughs> Commitment to love necessarily extends us to concern about justice. Of course, justice work is a long haul project with many, many actors contributing across the lifespan of the struggle. Think about the Black Lives Matter movement as one example. This term has recently been given to the contemporary nature of civil rights struggles by the racially oppressed and their allies which has spent decades in different countries. I think Hooke's writing remains relevant in the Black Lives Matter movement. Its revolutionary potential arises from her willingness to put the word love into a form that links the personal and the political. It is a contested word in Western cultures. Even so, Hooke puts it right there in the middle of public life and issues. Her close friend Cornel West who is also significant in the Black Lives Matter movement, says that love is what justice looks like in public. I find that a very inspiring way to think about love. Whether it is in public or in private, love is any action that avoids being retaliatory and avoids harming others. Love is any action that turns from violence or neglect of people and other beings towards love. Love is the answer to experiences of lovelessness. Love can heal broken hearts. The next section is called A Cautionary Note. <clears throat> a reading of my theory of love at this formative level of development perhaps raises more questions than it answers. Love is a highly valued idea and experience. It is equally highly contested. Fromm recognised this when, in 1956, he wrote that most people think of love as a pleasant sentiment or something that we fall into. Many people regard being loved as the most important thing in life. Fromm argues that love is something to be practised as a form of art, that it requires knowledge and skills to build our capacity for love and to be loving. Laurie and Stark outline the main sociological critiques of the idea of love, which serve as a cautionary note in what is asked of a theory of love. They identify three critiques where love could result in heteronormative social relations and thus annihilate differences and deepen inequalities, that love is a derivative of desire and not thus not a primary concept in its own right, and that love is not amenable to empirical study and must be rejected. I think each of these critiques has merit, but I want to bring my attention to the first point, which is most relevant for our purposes. The authors are saying we need to gaze moralising in relation to love, which condones love as acceptable only in some types of relationships. Namely, there are limitations to a theory of love that sets up dualisms of who is valued and free to love, who is not valued and not free to love. Such strictures undercut the moral principles that all beings are equal and that all beings are worthy of love. At the same time, this risk should not be used to avoid recognising the human causes of the material realities of oppression. 
in addressing the human causes, the responsible parties should be afforded equal moral regard while they're being held accountable. Not an easy political or moral position to uphold. Moral pressure by non-violent advocates for justice may be unwelcome for the, for the responsible, powerful parties. But it is not the same as violence against the powerless parties in the justice issue. I also want to avoid extreme relativism where any behaviour in the name of love is morally acceptable. It may be the case that isms such as fascism, colonialism, capitalism and the social expressions of these, authoritarianism, racism, classism, sexism and speciesism, involve attachment to certain ideas of the public good, of what is good for society as being expressions of love. Supporters of capitalism would want to argue, as just one example, that the pursuit of profits by mining natural resources is a good thing for society. In Australia, various state mines acts and the Federal Corporations Act 2001 make it legal to do this. Therefore, mining can be considered as a form of moral good and expression of love in a capitalist society. This line of argument about what constitutes love is not one I can agree with. Love as working for democracy, based on sustainable socialist ideas, is more compatible in terms of my overarching political stance. But democracy too is a fraught idea and far from a realised project. Nevertheless, I will keep delinking capitalism and all the other isms from my understanding of love. I will keep all valuing a form of active participatory democracy that protects and values diversity within a moral code of love, justice, sustainability and peace. Part of what is required to grapple with the issue of the idealising of love are other capacities such as critical thinking and analysis. These capacities enable us to place love as a political practice in its social, historical and economic contexts. In so doing, an appreciation of the unequal material consequences of how the elites construct the public good and where love fits can be achieved. This is supported by Laurie and Stark, who present the argument that love is not only a matter of moral consideration, but needs to be understood as part of the material processes of life. They believe a theory of love should explain why love sometimes leads to fascism and at other times leads to communism. They claim a political love must break down and overthrow norms and institutions and hence act as a revolutionary force. In terms of what is involved in being a love revolutionary, I'm not sure the task is to radically break the existing social structures, the storming of the Bastille idea of revolution, but also do not wish to be complicit with social changes that are indolent, for example, the equality gap for Australian First Nation people, or even regressive, for example, the silencing of abuse in offshore detention centres with the Border Protection Act 2015, or not even on the public agenda as requiring attention, for example, torturous treatment of mental health patients in seclusion. I agree with Lorraine Stark's suggestion that we need to embrace difference, complexity, conflict of values, 
including ideas about love. This involves resisting the homogenising of others' ideas. It also involves resisting attempts at unifying social structures in the name of love at the expense of injustices that might thereby be concealed and silenced. The last part of this chapter on love is called Love Practices. Love is a big idea that inspires a broad range of actions and strategies for the highest possible good in a situation. Listening is an act of love. Caring for someone who is hurting is an act of love. Putting out a helping hand to someone is an act of love. Befriending a lonely person is loving. Ensuring animals are treated fairly is loving. Removing invasive plants from an ecosystem is an act of love. Taking responsibility for harm caused is love. Problem-solving issues as diverse as a lack of housing, loss of employment, unsafe neighbourhoods, unfair business practice, culling of unwanted wild animals and pollution of rivers and waterways are all acts of love. If any of these opportunities for love involves unfairness or violence, a different order of love practices is needed. Love as a power-sensitive approach is a political practice that seeks to address harm of all kinds for, for all kinds. Loving practices towards others need to meet, match and overcome violence and injustice. Love power focused on addressing harm has the hallmarks of concerned people challenging dominating people and places. This challenging needs to be done with love, not with violence, hatred and revenge. Challenging with love means we have to love the dominating people and places even as we advocate for the oppressed and hurt. Love practices are not about capitulating or naively cooperating actions. It can take a lot of courage and wisdom to know what to do in a specific situation where love is lacking. And even then, no amount of courage and wisdom may be enough to shift the views and actions of dominant groups. Challenging with love is far from easy, but lovelessness can only be overcome with love and all that love makes possible. Using violence to overcome lovelessness inverts the dominance hierarchy. The pecking order of inequality remains. Violence is reinforced as the means of addressing violence. In turn, belief in the power of love is diminished. If challenging with love does not succeed in enabling justice for those experiencing violence and lovelessness, then these harms must be resisted. The resistance against harm needs to be done with love. It is not always possible to bring about change for the better. It may be a long time coming. Meanwhile, minority status groups and their advocates need to refuse to become violent or to accede to the dominant group's regressive ideas and control. Resistance takes many forms as contemporary social and environmental movements show. Nonviolent direct actions are the core skills for challenging and resisting dominance and violence. They become more potent when the struggles for justice take on mass-scale protests and include impact of groups. 
Resistance also needs to be undertaken with love because the way to love and peace is through love and peace. In unsafe situations at work or at home, knowing how to survive or keeping your integrity and not betraying your own values, values is something all you have, sometimes all you have to hold on to. Behrouz Buchani showed us this. The aim of love practices is to address the violence and injustice in a situation. Love practitioners cannot witness harm and heartbreak and do nothing. They seek change which also needs to occur with love. When love practices engage the powerful in dialogue, then change becomes possible. This justice work involves changes to unfair legislation such as mental health acts that authorise the use of seclusion and restraint against mental patients. Love practices seek changes to unsafe organisational workplaces where authoritarianism and inadequate support of staff cause horizontal and vertical violence. Love addresses lovelessness. Thus the third main skill of loving practices is changing with love. Sometimes it is the advocates of change who need to model the change themselves. Leaders of social change efforts need to be loving and fair in how they treat their people and those they are asking to change. Change of legislation, systems, social norms and powerful people's views can take a long time. Resisting and challenging with love needs to be maintained to keep the moral pressure on the powerful groups. If done with love, where they are listened to and respectfully negotiated with, success is more likely, and retaliation and increasing violence may be minimised. Well, I thought that was a short chapter, but it did take us a while to move through the pages, didn't it? I, I just want to thank you for your interest. I hope you found that worthwhile spending your time listening to me, and um, look forward to having you with me again next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.